You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. There we were on top, Adler and Ross, about the biggest team in the country, or maybe in the world even. Suddenly, I went from being an exclamation point to a question mark. Composer and playwright Richard Adler, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In the mid-1950s, no one on Broadway was hotter than the team of Adler and Ross. Composer Richard Adler and lyricist Jerry Ross produced back-to-back Broadway hits with The Pajama Game and Damn Yankees, including songs that would be popular for decades. You gotta have heart. All you really need is heart. When the odds are saying you'll never win, that's when the grin should start. Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And little man, little Lola wants you. And no one cares how late it gets. Not at Hernando's Hideaway. Other songs they wrote made other artists popular too, like Tony Bennett. I know I'd go from rags to riches. And Rosemary Clooney. Hey there, you with the stars in your eyes. But in 1955, the same year Damn Yankees became a hit, Jerry Ross died unexpectedly at age 29 from complications of chronic lung disease. For Richard Adler, it was a devastating professional as well as personal loss. He continued his work, forming other collaborations from time to time and moving on and adapting to changing times. In 1990, Richard Adler wrote his autobiography, a book he called You Gotta Have Heart. And that's when I had the chance to meet him. So here now from 1990, Richard Adler. How, did, how long did you agonize over the title? Not very long. <laughs> it came to me very easily. First of all, I had a jingle plugging it. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Secondly, um, my life, uh, have you read the book? Mm-hmm. Well, then you know it's pretty much of a roller coaster ride through mm-hmm. life. A lot of highs, a lot of lows, very few plateaus. And uh, I figured that in order to get through this kind of a life, you got to have heart. Why did you write this book? Well, uh, I felt that it would be a good way for me to get a very even perspective on my whole life. Why have I been here? What have I been doing? How many things have I done wrong? Where am I going from here? So that all put that together. and uh, Does it all make sense to you now? Yes, it makes sense to me. That is the life, as I review it, I see uh, an interesting life. I see a life full of events. I see a life full of joys, full of sadness, full of tragedies, full of success, full of failures, a great big pastiche. But I, uh, I'm ending the life, that is, I hope I'm not ending it, but I'm <laughs> down the last leg of the road, feeling pretty good about the future, feeling pretty good about myself. 
But I didn't feel that way until a very short time ago. I don't know. You may not be that close to the end. Irving Berlin hung on for 101 years. Oh, I don't mean uh, chronological years. (laughs) I mean, mean, you know, I'm 69 years of age. I don't intend to live another 69 years. So, uh, although I'd like to. I, I don't think it's in the cards, Bill. Well, you know, it, it, recently when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking about Berlin, uh, uh, Lawrence Burgreen was here recently. He had the wonderful biography of Berlin. And one thing that struck me about Berlin was his ability to to change with the times. He had his uh, a good degree of heart uh, with him as well. Oh, he certainly did. And is that the key to, to staying power when you're in the songwriting business, is to be able to shift and change with the tastes of the public? Yes, and in order to do that, I think you have to be able to be very mobile. By that I mean, in my lifetime, though I've had numerous encounters with women, I don't sleep around, but I write around. In other words, I've written in every form of writing. I've written for motion pictures, theater, popular songs, jingles, and classical music for symphonies and chamber groups. So I've written in every area that can be written in uh, in the field of music. You are to music what Isaac Asimov is to books. (laughs) If you want to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Is there there something that is extraordinary about you, that you have the ability to do that that others don't have? If it's extraordinary, it's good luck. Uh, You might note in the book that I'm a rather uh, new kind of writer. By that I mean I don't play the piano, I don't read music, etc. However, I hear things and I put them on tape and I have a musical secretary and I compose that way. So um, that keeps me pretty fresh and alert, having to keep up with it. Being a kind of a musical cripple, let's say. I have to have my crutches. I have to have my tape machines, and I have to have my musical secretary. How many times have you been asked in your life, which is your favorite song? Well, my favorite song you wouldn't even know, (laughs) because it's not a popular song. It was an unpopular one uh, called Acorn in the Meadow. It was recorded by Harry Belafonte. Acorn in the Meadow Meadow filled with sun Sun is shining warm on the meadow Tree begun I think it's a lovely song. I wrote it a long time ago. That is my favorite song of the old songs. I have a whole new score, which I think is probably the best work I've done in the songwriting field, in the popular music field. I like my, in quotes, classical stuff. I hate that word. I call it seriouser. I write um, or have written quite a few uh, orchestral pieces that I was commissioned to write, like the Statue of Liberty centennial piece called The Lady Remembers. Before that, uh, Wilderness Suite to celebrate the National mm-hmm. Park Service Wilderness Parklands, uh, commissioned by the Department of the Interior. Both of these were recorded and did very well for me, and I've written various other kinds of uh, uh, classical works, and um, I think those rate or rank with my best writing uh, as far as melodies go and harmonic choices. 
Let me take you back to the your your back-to-back Broadway successes in the 50s. Is it difficult for a, a young man? You were a, a, a young man then. Is it difficult to handle that that sudden, not just success, but a grand success, two of them back-to-back? Well, um, I guess maybe it was difficult emotionally, but not as difficult as when it came to a grinding halt so shortly into it. There we were on top, Adler and Ross, about the biggest team in the country or maybe in the world even, including Rodgers and Hammerstein at that stage. I don't mean in their total career, but I mean at that particular mm-hmm. time in the 50s. And all of, all of a sudden, having been, as they say in motion pictures, a very bankable item, suddenly I went from being an exclamation point to a question mark very suddenly, because the team of Adler and Ross was a known quantity. Adler without Ross was an unknown quantity. So after all that success, I literally had to start from the bottom and go right up again, and it took a lot of years and a lot of grit and a lot of unhappiness to get there again, you know, a lot of struggle. Hmm. Gee, aside from the physical toll that must have taken, what an emotional toll that must have been on you. It's terrible because Jerry Ross was not only a great collaborator, a marvelous, uh, creative human being, but a close, loving friend. After this short break, Richard Adler reveals the simple secret to his successful partnership with Jerry Ross. Now back to my 1990 interview with Richard Adler. This has always fascinated me, whether it's two musicians, two writers, two whatever, two creative people. I know I've seen how independent creative people can be, but when two people who are creative can work together, what what does it take? What kind of special chemistry must exist for two people to work that well together? Well, it's like a marriage. Uh, you have to be able to make compromises. You have to get along. Uh, the way we worked was we had a rule that I devised called the negative rules. In other words, if I came roaring into a room and say, Jerry, I've got the greatest idea or the greatest melody or title or a lyric or a combination of them and was full of enthusiasm, and he examined it and he said, well, I don't think it's quite as good as you do, that was the end of it, or vice versa, if he came in that way. And that was a way that we could work successfully. We agreed to do that, and we never fought. We might argue. I might have tried to sell something to him. Oh, but you're wrong. It really is this, this, and this. No, I don't like it. And that was really the end of it. It could have gone on for quite a long time, couldn't it? I would think indefinitely. However, uh, karmically speaking... Mm. It wasn't in the cards, and uh, I had to grow in a different direction and really reach out further to get uh, back on my feet and go forward, and uh, it was a great challenge. My life has been a total challenge, you know. I'm into karma, that word. I am a, a believer in Siddha Yoga, the oldest yogic lineage in the world, thousands and thousands of years old. I find... Nothing but truth in it and beauty. That's also a very relaxing practice, isn't it? Well, sometimes. <laughs> it depends on your emotional state. Mm. I mean, it is. it does help to, meditating does help mm. to uh, calm you down and uh, quiet the mind. And it helps you get 
focus or one-pointedness, which is very important to be able to focus your mind because you know how busy the mind is constantly going with thousands of thoughts running in and out and uh, gets overheated. The body rests when we go to sleep. The mind never rests unless you meditate. I had an expert on daydreaming in here the other day, and he said how fascinating it was that so many creative people say they get their inspiration for a song or a book or a painting or whatever while they're daydreaming or while they're in that twilight between sleep and and wakefulness. Was that a creative time for you as well? Well, that's kind of like uh, what what happens to you when you go into meditation. You go into Mm -hmm. a sort of a meditative trance in which... Thoughts come into your mind. I mean, there's no way of stopping them. What you have to do in meditation is to try to find a space between two thoughts. But you can't fight them. You know, you have to let them go in, come in and go out. But come in and go out. Don't be uh, angry about it if you're going to meditate like I was. Mm. Like I said, my God, why can't I stop these thoughts from coming in? I want to relax my mind. Well, that makes it worse. Let me hit on something else. When you mentioned a few moments ago jingles, so many people seem to think that writing jingles is about the lowest form of, of profession that a, that a songwriter, a, a musician, a performer, an artist can have. But writing jingles, it takes it takes extraordinary talent, doesn't it, to work, come up with a jingle that lives for nine years or whatever the Newport jingle was? Eleven. <laughs> uh, well, um, yes. Uh, you see, when you're writing is sales managing, no matter what. If you're writing a show, You have to consider the characters that you're uh, motivating, that the story you're trying to sell, the mood that you have to create. If it's a comedy song, then you have to put that element into it. When you're writing a jingle, and with the prices that I was getting in the 60s when I was writing them, I call them advertising musicals, uh, you have to sell a product. But you don't write that with your left hand and the others with your right. I do the best I can if it's going to be a symphonic work or a jingle. It doesn't matter. I haven't written too many jingles recently. Uh, I love doing them. The last one I did was for Level R Blinds. That went seven years. Mm. That was in the uh, 70s. 80s, excuse me. It's almost though no, like, you, you, you don't really, you, you, you can't sit down and plan, now I'm going to write a hit song or now I'm going to write a jingle that will live on for years and years. It happens, or if it happens, doesn't it? You just put your best abilities into the hopper, mix it around, and see what comes out. If you like it, if you believe in it, maybe it can happen. And if you don't, you throw it away. Now, see, to an outsider, that's always what's what's fascinated me about Broadway, that you can spend months and months writing a show, rehearsing a show, casting, doing everything. And if it gets bad reviews the first night, it could be closed within a week. And all those months and months of effort, what a terrific gamble that must be. It's The odds are great against you getting a hit. But if you do get one, then the odds pay off enormously. However, what you say is absolutely true. It's a very frustrating business, and I think a very unfair one. And critics, you know... Critics, uh, my father used to tell me, are disappointed artists. Uh, The way I evaluate critics is a good critic is a critic who gives you a good review. And a bad (laughs) critic is a critic who gives you a bad review. And a great critic is a critic who gives you a rave. That's the only way to look at it. (laughs) You have to have a sense of humor about it, otherwise you're going to be in big trouble. 
And uh, my story does not just embrace the theater, though the library journal gave it the best review I've ever had in anything. Mm -hmm. And that'll go to every library in the world as a reference book because of my work in the 50s. Of course, my work beyond the 50s is... um, is in a different field of the recognizing, uh, recognizing the important things. But uh, um, you might mention uh, those things, plus the fact that my book is not just about the theater. It's about life. It's about women. It's about conflict. It's about trouble. It's about joy. It's about misery. Richard Adler died in 2012. He was 90. And you can get your copy of You Gotta Have Heart by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And heardeverything.com is where you'll also find my 1996 interview with another guy who knew a thing or two about Broadway hits, Neil Simon. And what I had Oscar say was, Felix, everything you do annoys me. You know, I come home and I find little notes on the pillow. We are all out of cornflakes. Then I knew I had to sign it. Felix would sign it in an annoying way. So he'd say, uh, Felix, Mr. Felix, Mr. Unger, uh, something else. And I said, I'll put the initials down, F-U. And I said, oh, my God, that's gold. (laughs) I just discovered gold. And my 1998 conversation with the singer who made one of Adler and Ross's songs a hit, Tony Bennett. Ralph Sharon, my music director for many years, said, Tony, you're going to San Francisco. He says, I think this might be a good song for you. And uh, I had no idea that... uh, I thought it was going to be maybe a local song, but it ended up being an international hit and uh, became my signature song. It's made me a world citizen. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thanks so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the housewife from Illinois who became one of the leading opponents of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s and 80s, My 2003 interview with Phyllis Schlafly. All the surveys show that the majority of women do not relate to the word feminism. They do not want to be called feminist. And I think if they look at the feminist movement, uh, they discover it's produced a lot of bitter, unhappy people. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 